Welcome to Living Your Best Life podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Miller. I just really wanted to express my gratitude and appreciation for you stopping by and listening. And today I am joined by Australia's biggest business strategist, the one, the only, the man on a mission, Mr. Kerwin Ray. Kerwin has not only been a mentor to me for the last five years, but is now a dear friend who I value at such a high level. Kerwin Ray is really impacting the world with his influence in all areas, not just business, leadership, parenting, health and well-being, and many, many other areas, living his purpose, helping people succeed. In today's podcast, we talk about the topic of corona and the reset that uh, it is affecting uh, us in business and even as a personal reset. We talk about consciousness. We talk about meditation. Um, and we also talk about how um, Kerwin is really leaving a massive legacy behind. So get excited, people. This podcast is one that is life-changing. And if you love it as much as we loved putting it together for you, share it with your friends leave a comment um, so we can continue to bring you amazing content like this. So get excited and let me introduce to you, Mr. Kerwin Ray. So Kerwin, my question normally is when I start my podcast is for the people that don't know you, who is Kerwin Ray, but I think we'd have to say that most people would actually know who Kerwin Ray is. So I thought how I'm going to start mine today is <laughs> oh, how you start yours. If you were at a dinner party yes. and everybody was standing around having a little yes. chat mm-hmm. and it came to you and somebody said, Kerwin, what do you do? How would you answer that? Well, I'm, I've rehearsed this response thousands of times. I've executed <laughs> it probably just as many. Uh, I say I'm an ass model for Calvin Klein. <laughs> Which I, I can see it normally, it, it provokes that response every single time. And what I'll say is this, Beck, is if I had to walk into the studio backwards, you wouldn't be laughing right now. You'd be like, yeah, okay, I can see there's a lot of truth in that statement. Uh, but <laughs> truth be known, that's often how I'll answer that question is normally with that response or something, you know, a little bit jovial to, you know, create a nice uh, a nice moment of energy. But if, uh, if, if people really dig into it, I just say, look, yeah, I'm into performance and business, uh, media, education. Uh, I don't have the best one-liner for when it comes to answering that question. But, you know, it always comes down to how do you describe something? Because a lot of what I do is quite broad. And so there's no no real box for it other than, you know, I'm really a, a, a performance obsessive, someone who's just obsessed with performance and, you know, loves to express it in a range of different areas, business probably being the biggest one, uh, and relationships and health uh, and mental performance, the others. And that's the thing too is it has become a lot broader. Like obviously uh, we've been in the same orbit for around about five years now. I know, five years back. Going into the sixth year, so it's it's super exciting. Um, And I've seen you grow and expand and evolve and, um, you know, we've been through a lot of things together. Like We have. Yeah, which is amazing. And obviously being part of the K2 community, uh, which is your uh, second little baby. We've got Noah. Obviously, who is your number one? Um, but I guess for me is uh, you know take us back to where it all started for you, Kerwin. Like I know that uh, you know you know you've got a bit of a backstory as far as your you know from your you know what 
you know, growing up. Um, where it began. Take us back to where it all started to now, like if we sit and reflect to where you are now, you know, take us back there and let's go through the journey because it's one that I think is pretty special. Yeah, look, it's an interesting journey. And I guess in many ways it has many starts. Um, and, you know, whenever anyone asks me that question, my first response is, well, where do you want to, how far back do you want to go? And I, because I, I want this to, you know, re- really fulfill the needs of your curiosity and the curiosity of your audience. Like, where would you like me to start? Because there are, you know, I, I feel very honored. And Beck, you know, so much of my life story already. I feel like I have lived, lived so many different lifetimes, you know, in the one life that I've had. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm happy to start anywhere. Where do you think would be uh, the best place to start? Well, I reckon maybe back to even as far as you know everything that went down for you down you know back at school because it had it sort of had uh, a massive effect on how you've ended up where you are now. To be. Oh, huge, yeah. huge. So let's go. Yeah, ahead. look, my, my my school journey was um, you know collectively very challenging. I ADHD, dyslexic, not really functionally diagnosed or labeled, I guess you could say until the age of seven or eight. And so for me, I found school to be the only thing I could, I was really good at concentrating on at school was the clock. And I'd sit there and I'd watch the clock for fucking hours. And I'd just, you know, in my mind, I'd be willing it to, to tick faster so that we could get to recess, you know, so we could get to lunch and then we could get to, you know, uh, home time and I could start playing again. And so for me, school wasn't a very academic process. It was, if anything, it was very, a very challenging process. I was always seen as very different. I was always very labeled as very different. And I was always kind of put in a category of, I guess you could say the 1% um, of the, the lowest end, you know, the, 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 the kids that really did have a lot of trouble learning. And as a result, you know, I came up with, uh, I guess you could say coping mechanisms, a range of them. And one of the coping mechanisms, I, uh, I started just becoming, I guess you could say a little bit entertaining. And I started to entertain my friends uh, because I was getting a lot of the wrong type of attention, as you can imagine. And so I wanted to, you know, maybe balance the balance the score in, in some respects. And, um, so I, I became a bit of a class clown, I guess you could say. And and that's where, for me, I'm, I'm internally grateful because I went ended up doing, my mum was very, uh, I guess you could say, drama orientated. So we did drama, you know, all through school. Uh, I did drama actually up until year 10. And so that for me was also another outlet for me to, you know, have a form of expression. And not that I ever got on stage apart from, you know, a couple of, I think a musical in year two and maybe something in year six. Uh, I didn't really act, so to speak, but I just enjoyed the process of, you know, being able to, I guess you could say, act out in an entertaining way. Because there were times in year, oh gosh, actually it was year 10, possibly year 11. No, I did do drama in year 11 where the teacher would literally just give me the stage for half an hour and I would just make the class fucking crack up. Um, and so for me, you know, it had many benefits, but on an academic side, I left school very, I guess you could say quite wounded intellectually. Cause I, I, I really let it put me into a hole of being, uh, or validating the suggestion that I was stupid because I did get suggested at one point that I was stupid and my little brain, you know, needed something to grab onto to understand why I was so different. And that was a really good handle, you know, feeling stupid. Well, that explains everything. I'm stupid. And, you know, when I couldn't learn, I couldn't read all that explained because I'm stupid. And so, you know, I, ha- I held onto that mantle for a very long time and school really reinforced that in so many ways because, you know, school is a, is a, is a form of assessment in life. It is the first, you know, <laughs> I guess you call 12 years of life assessment. And, you know, so many people, oh, kids and parents, you know, they, they, they put a child's worth on their life performance in a fucking classroom. And so for me, 
and I, I fell into that like everyone else. And so I just didn't think I was a very good at anything. Like I, you know, and that's the honest, the God's honest truth. I was very good. I was very interested in sports and specifically martial arts. I fell in love with the karate kid when I was about, you know, maybe eight or nine and started doing martial arts when I was about 11. And so that way for me in that early range of the childhood, uh, I felt very grateful because that became an outlet for me. Martial arts was my first outlet and I be absolutely became obsessed with martial arts and training and, you know, training every day. And, you know, I joined multiple uh, clubs in the, in the same area and, and then ultimately bodybuilding and powerlifting, you know, and that for me was just a discipline every day I could go and I could lift things. The great thing about martial arts is I did have a very high play drive <clears throat> and I had a lot of energy. Um, and yeah, to be honest, I really did love fighting. And that sounds really strange to say as a, someone who's quite a peaceful adult, but I did really enjoy the uh, combat. I loved combat. And so as a result, I threw myself into that, you know, quite heavily in my teenage years and then subsequently bodybuilding um, and powerlifting. And those things really taught me, you know, the fundamental um, uh, strategies, I guess you'd say around resilience and grit, because when you look at martial arts, it's a very difficult sport, especially when you're competing, you know, cause you, you know, just to make weight or just to train your injuries. And, you know, it's, it's not a sport where you it's a sport where you get hurt on a regular basis in most cases every day. Uh, and when you're going to the gym, especially the, the the way that I trained, I was going to the gym, I was training six days a week from the age of like 13 till 22. I was training six days a week religiously. I was managing gyms all through school, had a key to the, every gym I trained at. I was sponsored athlete in most cases by the gyms that I was training at. Because as a result, I had this enormous, if, if training day fell on Christmas day, I was in a fucking taxi, uh, you know, at 15 years of age on my way to the gym, you know, at 6.30 in the morning and then again at 3.30 in the afternoon. New Year's Day, Christmas Day, you know, if it fell on it. And as a result, I had very disciplined eating routines and, you know, bodybuilding and powerlifting specifically taught me, again, an extension of martial arts, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ability to deal with pain. And I uh, was one of those people that had an obsession with the performance in the gym. And as a result, I had to learn how to, and that's the thing with training, a physical training, especially like a weight, an isolated weight training, you know, you're isolating a muscle, you're training that muscle to the point where it feels like it's about to disintegrate. It's about to melt, you know, it, and it, it hurts. And all you want to do, all that muscle wants to do is stop and rest, but you go, no, you just keep pushing and you keep pushing. And you, I learned so much about myself to really look at my body and go, my body is screaming it right now that it literally is going to melt and it's going to tear in my biceps and my legs are going to tear in half. But hey, I can I can get one more rep, and that's where I developed this psychology uh, of just one more, just one more, you know. And it was okay, just one more rep, and I was like, I do, uh, you get one more. Rep. And like, okay, now just one more, and then just one more, and then when I converted, and this was really interesting part of my story. Uh, back on, you may know this is when I converted from, I guess you could say, the academic world and the employment world to becoming a business owner. At first, I didn't really think I was very well equipped. Cause I didn't, I thought I was too lazy cause I'd been given that label as well yeah. and that handle and that suggestion. And that helped explain a lot of the evidence at school because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't motivated to go to school. So I was lazy. I wasn't motivated to do homework. I was lazy, but uh, put me in a gym and fucking you know, this kid was motivated. <laughs> so to speak. Um, like so yeah. that, that, that's um, what you learn in the gyms then into a business and and that was massive for me but I didn't make that connection straight away yeah. you know because I was in business and I was having a bit of a struggle and my mate one of my mates mentors actually at the time Peter said to me he said well, what's going on I go oh I'm just trying to shake this whole lazy identity and he goes lazy he goes you are the most unlazy motherfucker I know he goes, you're up early and you're growing, you go to the gym, you're always eating in a disciplined way and, you know, you work and you're staying back. And I'm like, he goes, you're the most disciplined person I know. And I was like, fuck yeah, I am. I just held on to this mantle, this label. And so I started 
you know, bringing that and he goes, look at your gym and he goes, look at that training, look at your martial arts, bring that into your entrepreneurial psychology. And I did, it was like one more phone call, one, just one more phone call, just one more email, you know, just one more hour, you know, just one more day, you know, and that kind of, yeah, really built the foundations. And I know that yeah, your businesses are very purpose-driven. It's very incredibly uh, values-driven business. Now, I'm sure it probably always wasn't like that. When did you actually, um, you know, know that those, you know, finding your purpose in life and then it just expanding? Great question. You know, I, I got an incredible opportunity back in, um, I think it was 98. I worked for a guy called Stephen Covey. Uh, he wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, he also, he had a company at the time that had just merged. It was Covey Leadership and Franklin Quest. And so when I, at 98, 99, uh, when I worked in this organization, I got exposed to some of the best quality, some of the best quality personal development you can find, but also some incredibly potent leadership frameworks, dynamics, and concepts because, uh, Franklin Covey at the time, they, they sold consulting, but they also sold, you know, licensing and public training. And, you know, it was in the area of time management was a, was a big offering uh, and another area. And they only had really three efforts, time management, sales and leadership mm-hmm. and leadership. And they had this program called the four roles of leadership, which I was very privileged to, to do. It really helps you understand about the fundamentals of a purpose, the fundamentals of different language. Cause they talk about a mission statement, you know, similar, but different languages, uh, definitions and terms. And so I got exposed to that. But the funny thing was, is when I came out of that, I helped turn them around and then I got back into business because I'd been in business previously. You know, the business went tits up due to bad management on a on a on a on a co-founder's behalf. And so as a result, worked for these guys. And um, I went and consulted. And so when I went back to business after having this two-year, I guess you could say, education, mm-hmm. I literally left there going, man, and this is no disrespect because I had some great team members. Man, this this company was, let's call it a purposely driven company, a values-driven company. And they were f- it was a fucking mess. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I came into there and, and all I was like, we need to focus on marketing. We need to focus on sales. And as a result, you know, this company that was a mess, we we're able to create a significant impact by getting them to focus less on the softer stuff and more on the hard, you know, tactical, practical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so although I resonated with many of the concepts, I walked away going, it's not as important as what these guys make it out to be. And, you know, the first, I'd say, let's call it 10 years of my business life from 2000 to 2010, it was very much about strategies and tactics. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very much about marketing and sales. It was very much about, you know, uh, identifying customer, acquiring customer, looking after customer and just, you know, running a machine for that process. And there was purpose there, don't get me wrong, but there wasn't what I'd call real leadership. And real leadership is where, you know, you, you become this visible example to others specifically in business, a team where they look at certain behaviors, which are expressions of things that are, are, are important, like a value. And they look at expressions of drive and they go, wow, that's either inspiring me to become better, inspiring me to stay average, or, you know, really kind of make me go, oh, fuck, why am I here? You know? And so for me, you know, my leadership journey really probably started around 2010. Uh, and it really kicked into gear, I would say 2015, no, sorry, 2013, 14, when I found out my, my ex-wife, Kristen was pregnant. And that's where all of a sudden there was a massive shift on the value of time. And, you know, from my story, I've had a number of near-death experiences. So I've always had a very high value on time, uh, but not until Noah came along that there was this massive shift in values. Like all of my hierarchy just got like, everything was, everything was challenged. Uh, it was like a tangled hierarchy and, you know, time really came right up there uh, as a result of connection to family. And as a result, I started to really look at, okay, 
where do I invest my time and what behaviors? And that's where I really became conscious of my drive and purpose. You know, and that became very visible at that point. It had already been there, but it hadn't been like right here. You know, I became very clear of, you know, what my operating uh, and organizing values looked like in my personal life, integrating with my business life. And so when they became more visible and I realized they were performance traits, you know, that's when we started to echo them and, and really elicit them and look for them in the hiring process, but all, also in which the, the, the standards we hold is, I guess, because any, you know, to me, a values, a values document is in many ways, it's a, it's a recruitment document. Okay. It's a firing document, uh, but it's also a, it's a standards document. It's a code of conduct document. And so to me, that's what we need to really measure ourselves against. And so, you know, I think the more clear I got about what drives me, the more I aligned with people who were aligned with me, the more values orientated we all kind of were. And it creates this level of alignment where you have this, um, this, this consistency and this energy where everyone's moving in the same direction. It doesn't mean you don't have problems. As you know, Deb, your business, my business, you can have the tightest values and the tightest culture in the world, but you're going to still have every now and then a little fruit fly is going to line, come in and you know, lay a maggot somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but that's again, good leadership, good values is help you, helps you identify when that happens and the better the transparency and the, the visibility and the communication of all those values, the sooner we find out and we can do something about it. And are you finding, Kerwin, as far as leadership goes, um, there is a, a, a change at the moment, probably not quick enough, um, for people's leadership, you know, coming out of that dictator leadership to more that visionary leadership, that um, yeah. conscious leadership, you know, how are you seeing things? Well, it's monkey see, monkey do, you know, and for so long we've been demonstrated, like if you you know, we're able to turn to whatever channel the fucking channel is where the politicians get to debate policy and bills and everything else. And you look at our country's leadership, you're like, fuck me. Is that the, is that, is that what we're following? Cause this is, these are the leaders of our, you know, of our communities. These are the leaders of our States. These are the leaders of our country. They're acting like fucking kids. It's like, what the hell? And so I think for a long time, it was monkey see monkey do. There was a very strong carrot stick uh, leadership psychology that's really been, you know, heavily drilled in since the industrial age. And it's only really been as we've started to, I guess, reach that point of satiation where people are going, fuck, this shit just doesn't work anymore. You know, I hate being told what to do. And you see these millennials and these businesses where they can have mass exodus of, of talent. Cause they go, you know what? I'd much rather earn less money, you know, for someone I like than earn more money for someone who's going to, you know, create a fear-based environment that uh, I don't want to go, go into. And so it, it's, it, I think it's becoming more important, but it's because it has to be, it's a necessity. Uh, and I think it's been slow um, probably for a whole range of reasons. And one of them has probably been because, you know, uh, I guess stereotypically gender speaking, you know, the entrepreneurial realms have been very masculine for a long time. Yeah. Um, and many of the successful leadership traits that we're seeing come through now, although perceived to be feminine, are actually just fucking human. You know, empathy is a human trait. Vulnerability is a human trait. You know, a lot, for a long time, people go, well, empathy and vulnerability, that's a feminine trait. Well, yeah, it is a core feminine trait, but it's a human fucking trait at the same time. You know, because I'm incredibly masculine, but I have enormous levels of empathy. I'm incredibly masculine, but I have, you know, enormous levels of uh, the ability to, to, to feel people's pain, but also be vulnerable in my own pain and share my own experiences without you know, the fear of looking weak or looking bad. And so, you know, I think the dynamics at an energetic level are shifting. We're starting to realize that, you know, performance is really so much of performance. And I just had this chat with Wayne Pierce yesterday. Um, the, uh, and he's an incredible footballer, incredible coach. And he was just saying, look, without trust, you just, you don't achieve the optimum levels of flow in communication and performance. 
And it's like, how do we as leaders create an environment that is safe, safe enough to people for people to want to, you know, feel okay about failing, but also feeling just a little bit, and this is going to sound a little bit counterintuitive, a little bit unsafe. And what I mean by a little bit unsafe is we can't live in a fully safe environment because if we do, we're completely delusional. You know, we have to live on, uh, uh, Jim Collins calls it productivity paranoia. There has to be a little bit of, you know, what if it doesn't happen? And so that, you know, in many respects, it can be the tension that creates a drive. And that's what a good leader will do As a good leader will create a safe environment, but they'll produce enormous levels of tension around the expectation of performance, but they'll do it ideally in most cases in healthy ways. Mm. And depending on the person, it could appear to be, you know, a whole, and it might not always appear in a healthy way, depending on how it's been executed. And I think too, at the moment with the, you know, COVID-19, it's been, you know, this is where we have had a massive global reset, personal resets. This will reveal. Um, it is. Doing yeah. uh, in a lot of businesses, things that aren't right. Um, what do you think is going to be the biggest innovation that's going to come out of the, the, the COVID-19, the complete reset that we're seeing? Oh, look, that's a, that's a big, biggest question. The biggest innovation in most, in more, more than likely will be technology. Um, um, and that's going to obviously flow into a, a range of different areas. Um, but in terms of innovations, uh, I guess you mean at a commercial level? Yeah, at a commercial level. I, I think we're going to see um, a lot of innovations being born out of industries re- recompositioning themselves. You know, we're seeing a lot of industries right now, tourism, airlines, you know, they're basically letting go of an incredible amount of talent. And so we're seeing, you know, other industries that are being born that are going to essentially take up some of that talent. And so I, I think there's a enormous opportunity in that recomposition phase. Um, and also the recomposition of different business models as well. Mm. Um, you know, again, if you look at property as a, as a business model, oftentimes it is geared on your ability to get a capital return as any investment is through the cash flow of rent. Yeah, but now what we're seeing is we're seeing a massive exodus of, you know, people leaving office space and commercial space because they're now going, well, fuck, why have I got, you know, 250 people in, a, in an office when everyone works just as good at home? You know, and those offices are now sitting there, but we're now seeing in some cases rising levels of unemployment and it's still being buffered by stimulus. Uh, but, you know, we are, we are seeing obviously less, you know, people in distress, but I think we will see a recomposition of office space into more usable space. Um, and so that trend will be obviously de-urbanization, people are leaving the cities. And as a result, I think we'll see some different levels of from low to medium income housing in uh, in CBD areas. Cause you know, a lot of these uh, local governments are gonna have to make these areas a lot more attractive for people to occupy. Cause the last thing any <laughs> anyone wants is, you know, big empty cities. And I think one of the things that definitely come out of it and for me, um, is, uh, you know, that family unit for me, um, like I just, and I know for you, you got us really ready for um, the pandemic yeah. back in March. Thank goodness. Um, and we've seen a massive change. Our business is a physical touch and we were a business that was shut down for 10, 11 weeks. Um, and things have changed for us. We have actually pivoted a touch business to an online business, which, really is quite mind-blowing. It is. We actually now have a full online business. Yes, you can sell products, but to actually physically be, I've we've actually uh, got clients or we've got we've started to go global. We've got clients we're sending products to overseas. Like it's just phenomenal. Um, but I guess for me, um, the biggest thing that I've probably got out of the coronavirus is that I've actually got to have that really quality time with my family. Mm. And um, I know that, 
you, as uh, even though you're up there working, you're actually you've got Noah around you pretty much all, all the time now. And what do you what do you think it's doing to the family dynamics? Because I know that even oh, though you're question. Bill and Ray business coach, you've expanded. Uh, you know, some of your biggest hits is is family, mums, dads. Yeah. You know, they've got passion for business. They're trying to do their best, um, bringing their children up. We're in a world that's just moving at such a crazy rate as far as technology goes. What do you think, you know, as far as, you know, the, the change as far as, because I, I know for me, I never want to be away from the family now. It's just like, right, that's it. Things have changed. Well, with a house like that, I'm not surprised. You've got a beautiful, a beautiful ranch there. Look, I think everyone is seeing um, the effects of the quality of the, <laughs> I think the best way to describe this is COVID has revealed a lot in family dynamics, yeah. you know, because when people are forced to stay together, you know, you can't go to the, you can't go to the coffee shop, you can't go to work. You know, I think it's revealing a lot. Um, and I think at the same time, you know, there are certainly now families that are now able to spend a lot more time together. Cause what was interesting is during COVID, um, you know, I, I remember when COVID started and I said to Marie, all right, well, maybe we should just nip up to Byron Bay for a holiday for the next three months. She's like, yeah, great. And so we, you know, we got got everyone up to Byron Bay. And then as it turns out, we ended up fucking working harder in the next 11 weeks. And we probably worked in the last five years. Um, but I had a lot more balance. And what I mean by balance is I was waking up every morning, meditating, going to the beach, coming back, you know, getting into my thing. I was finishing, you know, when I had Noah on those days at four o'clock, going to the beach. And there was a lot more balance in that. And I think, you know, for me, uh, I was able to much like many other parents, but maybe with a little bit of a difference, uh, Noah was then homeschooled. Mm. And so he was around a lot more. And as a, by virtue of that, that creates its own set of pros and cons. Uh, and one of the, 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 the cons that we realized is I'm not equipped and nor is Kristen equipped and nor is our nanny equipped, uh, ex-nanny, uh, to um, essentially, you know, run a homeschool and homeschool Noah, you know. And so this is the most beautiful thing that one of the most beautiful things that has come out. And I don't mean to rub this in anyone's face because it's not my, my intent. Like I know how hard it was for me at school when I was six and seven years of age, when it came to learning how to read, learning how to write and learning how to do basic math. And I was one of 30 fucking kids that struggled. And I was that one kid that was like, okay, he doesn't get it. Just fucking leave him alone. All right. Well, as long as the other 29 get it, we're fine. And I know has many of the same characteristics of me. And, you know, when that all went down, we advertised and we were able to recruit ourselves a Montessori teacher, you know, in his category that we could use full time. And, you know, uh, and again, it was, I was quite surprised, not only at the affordability, but I was amazed at the, now the progress that he's been able to achieve. And if not for COVID, you know, he wouldn't, you know, he's, he's, inc he's, he's incredible now with his ability to write and read uh, and do basic math. And yeah. And so that's something I'm incredibly grateful for, but I think what this COVID thing, if I can bookend this question has done to families is it's elevated as has you know, the answer from my previous question, the importance for family leadership, you know, and family dynamics, because I think, you know, right now with everything that we're seeing, what we're seeing is, you know, we're, we're seeing behavior that is as a result of, you know, cultural or social sets. And if we're seeing bad behaviors play out in families, it's like, you know, unfortunately, when most people get a dog, if that dog you know, tears up the yard, you know, maybe they'll train the dog. In most cases, if they can't train the dog or they've tried and it doesn't work, they'll get rid of the dog. You know, unfortunately, you can't do that with your kids. Okay. And, <laughs> and you can't really, but you know, although people do do that with your partner, you know, and the goal for us is to learn as, as little human beings, adults, you know, uh, children in adults body, how do we navigate the dynamics of our relationships, you know, especially in an environment where we have to spend more time together. 
in a way that sets an example that is really healthy for the little ones who are watching to follow so they don't necessarily repeat some of the mistakes that we've made in our past. Um, and so, yeah, I think COVID is really like business. It's created this enormous requirement for leadership. But now that kids are spending more time at home, it's it's created, again, the same context, an enormous requirement for leadership, mm. you know. And I, I, you know, there's an old saying, there's no bad teams, it's just bad leaders. And I'm not saying there's bad families, you know, there's no bad families, it's just bad parents. But what I am saying is, you know, I understand an enormous amount of what's involved when it comes to training a mammal, whether it be a dog or a horse. And here's what I know. You know, they respond to their environment incredibly well. And whatever they are consistently reinforced in their environment will become their consistent expressions of behaviors. I know there are anomalies, anomalies when it comes to chemistry and in some cases allergies. But what I do know is the fact that most people, especially parents, they don't want to take responsibility for the behavior of their children. They'd rather allocate or delegate. So well, it's, the, it's the school, it's their friends. Well, yeah. let's have a little fucking look closer to look because it might be uh, a little closer to home because if, you know, if, 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 if if we're spending a quality amount of time in our children's life, then we are fundamentally the greatest influence they're ever going to have. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work um, on boundaries and blue, finding, you know, looking at... Blueprints, relationships, <laughs> codependence, yeah. Uh, we'd love you to share a little bit about that. Probably just, you know, even your experience, Carolyn, like, you know, like I know for me setting boundaries has really been something that I've struggled with. Because uh, you know you can upset somebody, or um, but it's so important, and yeah. uh, you know I'd love you to share because I know uh, it was yeah. a great follow-on question, Beck. Your interview skills are amazing, by the way. Massive credit to you. You're doing great. I um I think you know exactly what we're talking about now. You know we're talking about um, boundaries. We're talking about relationship dynamics. You know, and whether those relationship dynamics are with your team, you know, whether those relationship dynamics are with your kids uh, or your loved ones or your, or your family those dynamics are often influenced by the boundaries that we set around what behavior is willing to be accepted and what behavior is not willing to be accepted. And therein lies the keys <laughs> to healthy relationships, which is a, okay, if someone crosses a boundary and does something that I'm not, that doesn't make me feel good or I'm not happy with, you know, how do we communicate that in a functional way, in a healthy way that demonstrates to everyone around us how they do it in the same situation? You know, and I think, you know, when you're looking at um, you know, most relationships, most relationships are formed on a, especially parental. There's a level of codependence that is there that is required for survival. And so, so many of us are, you know, in the midst of unraveling that codependence because it goes from being dependent on mum to then, you know, that relationship transitions to them being dependent on dad. And then that relationship then transitions to being dependent on a best friend or a set of friends or then dependent on a lover or then a partner. And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's what we allow in those connections, in those attachments that determine the depth and the quality of those attachments. And so one of the biggest lessons for me is understanding the difference between, you know, uh, what our, cause we've all got blueprints, right? We've got behavioral blueprints in every area of our life. Our psychology can be is in most cases quite compartmentalized, but it's very networked. And when it comes to relationships, we have a relationship blueprint, like a fundamental, we have an intimacy blueprint as well. And intimacy blueprint and our relation blueprint, they're often the ones that are most heavily connected because, um, you know, in most cases, we don't want to get into a relationship with someone who doesn't have a similar blueprint on relationships, or sometimes we do. But at the same time, we want to make sure there's a level of intimacy connection or intimacy compatibility on that blueprint. And so what a lot of people don't realize is your intimacy blueprint has in most cases been wired or in every case been wired by, you know, that paternal parent or whoever played that paternal parent. And so that fundamentally, that connection that you have with that person fundamentally becomes the dynamic that you then seek in those intimate, you know, relationships. 
But if you have intimate connections that are, you know, on a consistent basis, producing levels of dysfunction, then there's possibility that the people that you choose based on that component, because when we look at when an intimacy blueprint is met, uh, or when we find compatibility in an intimacy blueprint, it creates what's called what I would refer to as chemistry, it creates charge, and it's this intoxicating feeling, you know, and things are always better when this person around sex is better, you know, everything is, is better, better, better. But unfortunately, it, it leads to doesn't lead to but outside of the high chemical connections there's behavioral dysfunction and it's like but what happens is people tolerate the behavioral dysfunction because they're getting those intimacy chemical compatibility needs met you know they get that 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 one or two needs met a day where they go ah that makes me feel better i'll put up with everything else you know in between. And so one of the things that I've learned when it comes to successful dynamics, and I'm fucking, you know, let's just be honest, right? Let's be honest. I'm divorced. Okay. Um, and, uh, but that being said, as with divorce and, you know, the way I've done relationships, I've got a, a lot of experience when it comes to relationships. And one of the things that I've identified through, you know, the last two specifically relationships that I've had long-term, you know, one of them being um, eight years is, we have what I'd refer to as compatibility and we have chemistry dynamics. And if we are driven by our chemistry dynamics and they're very attractive in relationships because they make us feel good. You know, it's in most cases, it's a sensory experience. Yeah. It's explosive. It's the, it's the Disneyland type of love. Right. But you know, at some point the chemistry dies down and then you're left with what's left over and what you're left over with is what would call the compatibility profile. And so for me, it's a mix of how do you find someone that you're compatible with Okay, that you can develop chemistry and or in some cases find those, you know, married, those two married together because but the challenge that I've discovered for most of us is oftentimes we find chemistry in our trauma, you know, and it's in some cases either a shared trauma or a shared wound. And that to me, again, it's not not the type of chemistry that we're really that I would consider I'd be looking for in a long term connection. Unless, of course, there was resolve on both sides for healing to take place. And that's a whole nother conversation. But when we look at compatibility and this is what i've discovered in in my relationships the more i align with people where there's natural compatibility there's shared values the more we explore and connect on those values naturally the more chemistry starts to build you know but what i discover is when the chemistry dies down and sometimes it does like some some days you you know you're just not feeling sexy you're not feeling spunky you know some some weeks uh, but you sit there and you go this we still connect because there's you know greater levels of compatibility um, and look, there's never the perfect, you're never going to get the perfect myriad. But for me, I've, I've learned an enormous amount about myself by understanding that, you know, I have, I have blueprints for relationships, different types and connections, relationships, I have blueprints for intimacy. And it took a long time for me to work out that my intimacy blueprint was leading to a lot of unhealthy relationships and not unhealthy and unhealthy being a spectrum, you know, there's a spectrum and a severe mine weren't that unhealthy, but they just weren't relationships that I wanted to continue. Yeah. So for me, it was just like, well, how do you get into, how do you get into a relationship? So to me, a relationship can be not abusive, not bad. It can be okay, but it's not one you want to stay in, yeah. you know? And so to me, it's like, how do you find a relationship that you want to stay in long-term you know, so that you can do the work that two people can only really do together in, in that context of that form of development. And this is the thing I think we've all got to understand, myself included, because I think there's a very big monk inside of me that just wants to <laughs> be alone. Um, we learn so much about ourselves. We, we will learn more about ourselves when we're reflecting off other people than we will when we're just, you know, reflecting off ourselves, uh, especially when it comes to understanding, you know, what our genuine values are, what our genuine motives are, but also what our, where our wounds are. You know, because it's not until people piss us off that we find out what's, you know, that we have a wound and that gives us the opportunity for exploration. So that's a big fucking answer. But uh. that's good, uh, so consciousness, you know, obviously uh, the deeper you, you know, develop your consciousness, 
Um, and, and I think, that, uh, you know, now there's no greater time than to become more conscious. I mean, for me, mm. I'd never even heard the word until I met you. So so for me, just even thinking about everything over the last five years since we've been in our orbit together, I mean, you've taught me so much and forever grateful for that. Uh, consciousness and then, you know, taking that into meditation and, um, you know, I'd love you to just to share how it has become a massive part of everything that you teach, you know, your psychology, your conscious, you know, being self-aware um, and then that meditation part of it as well. I mean, it is a big question, but I'm sure you'll be able to. <laughs> pretty, I give it a rental. And, and, and how consciousness and, and how that's changed your life and meditation. Yeah. Look, it's a big question. It really is. Um, but look, the reason I'm, I start every conversation yeah, with it. It's woo-woo. I think you know, people think that it's this big woo-woo thing and and, and, and it's not. Uh, and I guess that's what I really want you to. And, and that's what I think people are discovering. Like to me, whenever I talk about consciousness, you know, I always talk about it in a practical context. You know, if anything, I give it a very scientific kind of um, frame. You know, the brain processes 16 trillion bits of information every one second, but you're only subjectively aware about 2000 bits of that information, you know, so those other 15 trillion plus pieces of information, that's what sits in your unconscious. Okay. And those 2000 bits, that's in your conscious. So let's look at conscious, not from this concept of, I am aware of a higher spiritual being to the concept of I'm just fucking aware that I'm breathing right now. I'm aware that I can feel the sensation of the air leaving my nose right now. I'm now aware that I can feel different parts of my body that when I tune into it, that I wasn't aware of before. I'm also now aware of the fact that I'm, oh, should I, I, I seem to think this way just before I behave this way. Huh? Wow. What happens if I think differently? Maybe if I think differently consistently, I'll behave differently. I'm now becoming aware of the fact, you know, if I do this, I get that in return. And so for me, you know, consciousness is one of those things. Once you start developing consciousness, it becomes quite addictive because the more aware you become, the more you see. And I don't know, I don't know anyone that would want to see less. You know, we live in a world where we're trying to constantly heighten our sense, our sensory experience. And one of the best ways to do that, you know, people will change their sensory experience through drugs or through alcohol or music or, or going to movies and festivals. But, you know, how often do we actually understand that we can actually change all of that, you know, just within ourselves by becoming sensory aware of the, uh, the trillions of different nerve cells that are, you know, scattered throughout our body. Mm. And that then flows onto the ability to be more aware of how we think, how we behave, things that are going on in the market, trends that are happening in the market that we see that we see differently because we have more information. And this is what a lot of people aren't aware of is intuition is driven by awareness and consciousness. You know, there's been that many reports now, that much study to, 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 to validate that, that the more body of data that you have in a, in a brain, the more information you contain, the better your intuition works. And so for me, the, and it's not about reading as many books as possible. It's about becoming more aware of self because the more aware you can, and that's, that's, that's my, that's step one, you know, in the, in the pursuit of mastery. If, if you want to practice levels of consciousness, you know, people go, Oh, I want to go and, you know, practice awareness in the, in, you know, in the, in the fucking bush or whatever. And I'm like, dude, do whatever you want. But if you're going to look at this based on a project basis, start with you because you're the number one project. And the more aware you can become of why you think and how your thoughts are related and why you feel and what makes you upset and what gets you motivated, the more you start to realize, oh, fuck, I now know where all my buttons are. Hmm. And if I press this button, I get angry. Okay, so I'll stay away from people that push this button. Okay, great. If I push this button, I get motivated and really inspired. Okay, well, I'll hang around people that push this button, you know, and I'll keep pushing this button as well. And that to me is the it's one of the number one fundamentals of fucking performance, you know, set the environment up to support the organism to, you know, to evolve at the highest level of potential. And the more you know about how you operate, 
you know, you get, you, you create, you, you basically get your user's manual. The more you get to know yourself, the more you get your custom user's manual that, ah, oh, if I want to, you know, have my lights blink, I can just, you know, control alt delete. And it's, you know, once you start to realize, and this was probably one of the biggest things, and it's been evolu- and an evolutionary awareness that just keeps growing, that kind of really borderlines on the intersection of, I guess what you could say, simulation theory in many respects. We have a trillion dollar priest of fucking hardware. And this is, everyone fucking misses this bit, right? We have spent trillions of dollars in computer science and engineering trying to replicate this function, this 16 trillion bits, you know, of processing function. And we've spent decades and trillions of dollars to try and replicate a fucking computer uh, that we have in our, in our head. We have like, it's a six, let's call it a $16 trillion facility between our brain. And most people treat it like a fucking matchbox car, mm. you know, and they don't realize, wow, the more I get to know me, the more I get to realize that I am a fully pro I am bio organic, you know, and you know, I am, I am bio hardware. I have bio software. My cells are programmable. My brain is programmable. My heart, everything apart about of this environment, you know, especially at a cellular level, uh, is uh, is a programmable environment. Coherence <laughs> between gut, heart, and, and that that's the big one. And the more you can become aware um, of, you know, how things are supposed to be in the dual natured world, you do have greater levels of acceptance. And so you won't be involved in the emotional flux as much. You won't be involved in the uh, the stressful flux. And then you can maintain the coherence, which is what you referred to, Beck. And to me, coherence is the highest form of intelligence because it's when our gut and our heart and our brain are in full communication. Neural tissue, neural tissue, neural tissue. They're in full com- communication. But here's the best part. You know, the heart is also in communication with its environment. And so we are literally receptive. The highest form of intelligence is being coherent because you not only have access to the intelligence of your stomach on all the stored information in those neurons, you not only have access to the, you know, the information, the stored information in your heart or and the brain, but you also have access to the, you know, the 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 field environment and the information that is transpiring on in the field, you know, as a result of the way the heart, you know, receives information in a precognitive fashion. And so when those three are aligned, yeah, it's, and, but how do you get there? Consciousness, you've got to become aware. You've got to become aware of many little different variables. And then when they all line up, it's, uh, it's magical. And, and meditation, how does that play? I mean, it's- massive role. It's been a massive role in my life, has been for the last 25 years now. Um, but I think it's really important for people to understand meditation is one of those things. The more you do it, the better it gets. It's like going to the gym. You know, if you meditate for a couple of months, you'll feel great. If you go to the gym for a couple of months, you'll feel great. But then if you start eating shit again, you know, you can put back on weight and get fat. Um, once you do start meditating though, but that's the best thing. It's like when you train in the gym, you get this thing called muscle memory, you know? Mm -hmm. So when you go to the gym and you train lots, you know, whether it be for a couple of weeks or a couple of years, those cells, those muscular cells, they evolve and they develop and they become conditioned. And so when you go back next time, let's say you have, you know, you go and train at the gym for, for a year and then you take six months off. And so six months, over that six months, you lose the, the, the tissue that you've gained and you put on a little bit of the fat, but then you go back to the gym again and you have what's called cellular memory. And so as a result, your muscles build faster and your metabolism gears in a lot quicker because your body knows how to do this before. It's done it before. Yeah. Meditation is exactly the same. Um, but w- w- one of the things that I've really enjoyed through the process of meditation is just that ability to have a discipline in the area of awareness, that discipline every single day, like going to the gym in the area of observation of self, of the body, you know, of the mind, of the breath. And that's where you really get to fucking know yourself. Wow. Didn't realize my, you know, my brain speaks to me like this. I remember when I did Vipassana for the first time, it was an 11 day retreat, you know, they take a vow of silence, they separate the men and the women 
and you can't look at anyone. You meditate from 4.30 in the morning until like 9.30 at night. And I, I remember the first seven days of that meditation, it was like I was being punished because all like, it was like full contact. I was getting beat up inside my head every fucking day because I was thinking about all, uh, all the things that I wanted that I didn't have. Uh, <laughs> All the, all the sex that I wanted to have that I wasn't having, uh, all the things and food I could have been eating that I wasn't eating, uh, and the fact that I was spending, you know, my holidays in a fucking temple uh, when all my mates are, you know, overseas in Bali and Thailand and everything else. And it was just, and I was having the monsters, like literally I had monsters coming out in my head and uh, like trying to bite me and scare me and savage me. And I was like, what the fuck? And I'd done a bit of meditation at this point. This is in my early, mid, mid-20s, you know, 24, 25 but I'd never done it at this, at that depth. Um, and yeah, you get to, it's quite confronting. And that's why a lot of people won't do it. You know, they'll use base self, base level self-sabotage. Go, oh, I'm not meant to meditate. So that's like saying, oh, I'm not meant to fucking breathe. Like, we can all, we can all breathe if we practice it. You know, we can all meditate. If we, we can all exercise, if we practice it, meditation is a practice and um, it's, it's a discipline that I think, yeah, everyone should have. Yeah. And I mean, this is a good point to bring up fears and, you know, us facing our fears and, one of the biggest fears that I do see, uh, Kerwin, when, when it comes to business is people actually getting inside in front of their camera to actually showcase themselves to, you know, uh, um, me stepping into that business coaching space. Um, the businesses that I'm dealing with at the moment, they are just so scared to be out there on social media. And I know at the moment it's one of the big things that you are teaching. You have actually, for me, hands down the best in the world. The, the content that you bring out. Um, Thank you, Rick. You're impacting. I see what you do. Uh, you know, I see the messages that come through for people. You've saved people's lives as far as, you know, suicide, marriages. It's bigger than what, uh, you know, people could probably even imagine. I know what, what you know, what you guys do. Um, but, you know, video content, how important is it? And, you know, that, that fear that people are having, what kind of advice could you give well, it's an impractical fear. It's a very common fear. It's just not practical. Mm. You know, we've got to start looking at what our fears are from a practical nature and an impractical nature and being afraid of using social media, being afraid of using video. That's not a practical fear because, you know, my phone can't hurt me, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, we're only born with two base levels of fear, you know, fear of loud noises and fear of falling You know, everything else is learned. And, um, you know, being fearful of the camera, it's not unusual. And the reason it's not unusual is because it creates high levels of visibility and high levels of visibility as a mammal can be threatening depending on how you're behaving, you know, cause we are mammals. We have very strong primal natures. And one of the most dominant primal natures as we have as a mammal, especially a sophisticated one with the neocortex is to collaborate and connect and to create these herd-like environments. And that's how we stay safe. You know, we stay safe by, you know, living in these herd-like, uh, these herd-like environments. And so I think, um, Gosh, sorry. What, what was the, fear, the question? It was the fear around. Uh, oh, the fear around cameras. And so, when we're in these these herd like environments, we often will um, augment our behaviours in order to maintain connection with the herds that we're in. And you know, if we're in herds that aren't getting on video, you know, if we're in herds that aren't in business, if we're not around people that are demonstrating this is a normal, socially acceptable practical behavior on a regular basis because that's what's required then you're going to feel a little bit weird you know and when you feel unusual that's when you feel threat he's like well if i feel if i feel weird if i feel weird there's a possibility i look weird if i look weird people might judge me and if they judge me they may not want to be my friends anymore now this isn't going unconsciously but you know one of our biggest drivers as mammals is this fear of rejection because we associate it with our ability to survive 
And so as a result, we will unconsciously mitigate and, you know, sabotage behaviors to prevent us behaving in ways that could potentially get us evicted from the social herds and the family herds and circles that we live in. And, you know, being on, on video is one of those behaviors that in most cases would be threatening because of that level of visibility. You know, what's, what's mum going to say? What's dad going to say? What's auntie Joyce going to say? Oh, I saw you do a video. It looked a little, you know, what is, what is that story that you're running in your head? Um, and I think, yeah, that is probably not probably, it is one of the biggest things that prevents people. But when you consider just this basic stat, people who view video are 181 times, 181% more likely to buy your products and services than people who don't view your video. Fucking end of story. <laughs> so what else do you need to know? Um, and the reason video is so powerful is because it's a visual form of communication. It's an auditory form of communication. It is a moving form of communication, you know, and people you know, naturally are looking for things that move. We are, you know, we're, we're scanning constantly. And so when we get to watch a video, it's the type of media that captures our attention for longer because it basically works better with the way that our senses absorb information. And, and so we can, well. pardon? Builds your relationships as well. Right? Very, but that, but, as a natural consequence is what happens. Cause when we can see someone and how they behave, that's when we get to relate to them, connect to them and go, Oh, they're just like me, or they're just like uncle Rob, or they're just like, you know, Auntie Jean. And as a result, we create this level of connection, you know, that um, wouldn't be there otherwise. I can't tell you, and you probably know this Beck, you've maybe even seen it. How many times have I had people come up to me on the street and go, oh, my God, Kerwin, it's so good to see you. And I'm like, Hey, how's it going? And they're like, Oh, I'm sorry. You don't actually know me, but they literally approach me as if, Oh, and I'm like, Oh fuck. I know this person. And I'll, you know, and that many times people say, I, honestly, I feel like I know you, I, you know, we talk about you at the dinner table and it's just like, we feel like you're just, you know, a, a part of our family kind of thing. And it's just like, yeah, it never ceases to amaze me. And do you think as, as businesses it is the number one thing that all businesses need to be doing is, is showcasing themselves? Yeah. Look, there's a lot of number ones, you know, people, the people say, what's the number one thing you can do. And it's like, there's probably like 10, but as a fundamental, it needs to be one of the fundamentals. If you're going to learn how to play tennis, you'll learn how to serve. You know, and if you're going to be in business in 2020, then you've got to know how to do video. Uh, it's as simple as that. It's a fundamental. It's not something that is a nice to have. It's a something that in most cases, businesses are slowly waking up to. It's a must have. Uh, and the fact that we've now got, you know, businesses in every trade you can imagine doing video, you know, we've got, we've had directional drillers, you know, concrete fabricators, you know, finance, mortgage, the whole kit and caboodle, lawyers, accountants, all doing um, video. And this is what's amazing. It's, we're still at that very, um, I guess you'd say infantile or embryonic stage where, like just as an example, 6% of pages on Facebook, 6% of business pages on Facebook actually pay for advertising. That in itself speaks everything. I'm not surprised by the videos that I see on Facebook. I'm surprised by the videos I don't see, you know, because I'd like to see more videos from local massage providers. I'd like to see more video content from, you know, dentists and restaurants so that I could have more content in my feed to make you know, better decisions, more informed decisions about who I want to trade with, you know, in my local environment. And um, it's not difficult. You know, a great example, big, another shout out, I shout out to these guys, uh, Bay Seafood on Instagram. Um, that every day, you know, they're bringing in their fish and all they do is take photos of themselves cutting up fish, take videos of themselves cutting up fish. And every day they're fucking selling out all their stock. And all they do every day is I'll start with a big tuna and then before you know it, they'll show you how to take the bloodline and then peel it out and then steaks. And then, you know, let's call it over the post of next five, five hours, they'll do like six posts. And the last post will be this plate of sashimi. And it's just like, oh, you know, you just took me through the fucking journey. You're a seafood shop. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm now hankering for some, for some sushi. And, you know, I think that's where businesses forget that, you know, it is interesting. 
And you know, most people would probably be prefer to be watching a video about your business and what you do in your life or your business than watching a fucking cat video, you know, especially if they've got, you know, an issue of uh, a requirement to lose weight or if they're having a relationship problem or if their skin's, you know, causing issues for them. I don't want to watch fucking videos about cats. That's to distract them from their problems. You know, give people videos that can actually fucking help them solve their problems. And uh, yeah, it just serves a greater purpose. So when you sat back, you know, uh, how long have we had K2 Elite going for now? Since 2015. 2015, which is, oh gosh, so I've pretty nearly, because I know when I was, Noah was born, 2014, yeah. So when I joined, there was only like 40 businesses and now there's, you know, close to 400. I just have to, you know, how does that make you feel? Like it is, it is something that is really special. Um, I don't, you know, me back really well. And you know, you know, one of the answers you're probably going to make, I don't sit back and look at what I've done and go, Oh man, you know, high five to you, you know, um, it's just not my style. And, you know, and this is something for everyone. I'm still learning how to receive praise just like everybody else. You know, we've all got our stuff. And one of them is me just acknowledging, you know, some of the things that I do. So I don't sit back and look at K2 and go, Oh my God, I'm chuffed. But I do on a daily basis, look at the things that we do within the community and the impacts that we have beyond just, you know, 5X, 10X and 20X in companies of all shapes and sizes. You know, I look at the connections. I look at the love. I look at the support. You know, I, I think about the situations where when someone's in need and all of a sudden you've got people flying, yeah. you know, from all over the fucking country uh, to support people. And it's just purely because they're all part of this same community where they just want to see everybody succeed. And so for me, you know, I created K2 with the goal in mind of, you know, if, if you can't choose your family, then maybe you can create one. Um, and don't get me wrong. I'm, I've got a small family. I've got a great mom, great dad. They did the best that they could. Um, but I just, I, I wanted a bigger family, you know, I didn't have a big family. And so for me, K2 Elite has become that, that vehicle to not only have a bigger family, but also to create a really safe place for people to grow. And I think that's where, you know, I get the most joy is when I acknowledge how safe K2 is, you know, and don't get me wrong, we, we apply enormous amount of fucking tension to get performance. But, you know, the consistent theme is, man, this is such a safe place to fall. This is such a safe place to share. This is such a safe place to dig into the stuff that's been holding me back. And because this is what I've learned. And Beck, this is what you're learning with your journey, as I'm sure. You know, strategies and tactics and process and frameworks, you know, that's fucking easy. Anyone can give you a framework on how to do social media. Anyone can give you the framework on, you know, how to fucking tick boxes. But it's it's what goes on in here that determines everything else out there. And so as a result, you know, K2, we spend a disproportionate amount of time on, you know, and I call it the performance psychology, but we, we spend a disproportionate amount of time on the individual. And see, this is what people don't realize when it comes to performance psychology. People think about, oh, people who are high performers, they have no problems. No, they fucking do. They do. And in most cases, they have more than fucking you because they're performing at a level that attracts more problems. They just have different processes of how they deal with those problems, you know? And so for me, you know, I think it's really important for, for people to understand, you know, the, the, the more of a high performer you are, in most cases, the more problems you have, you just get in most cases better at dealing with what those problems are. Uh, and for me, fundamentally, our ability to deal with our problems, you know, is what determines how far we will go. So if you're in business and you get to a point where you've got a level and you go, oh, I can't get any further, you might go, well, it's my social media. Oh, it's my sales. But what might actually be going on is it just might be the fact that you've got no support around you. Okay. You've got no example to actually follow. And maybe you're just a really shit leader and you don't know that yet. 
Okay. And you need someone to step in and perhaps show you that the reason that you can't grow and can't scale is because you've got some, some real relationship issues and you will go, well, I don't have a relationship here. I employ them to do a job. Yeah. But it's the way that you speak to them. Well, that's a, oh, well, let's go back to where that began. <laughs> you know, let's look at that pattern playing out in your personal relationships. You go, fuck, you know, I'm not very good at relationships. No. Okay. You're okay. As a business person, you want to scale, but if you'd want to scale as a business person, you suck at relationships it's going to be a fucking, it's going to be, you know, a, a ring, a ring, a, it's going to be a, a circus of pain. And so our goal is to become, you know, put ourselves in an environment where we go, shit, I'm not very good. Like as an example, I'm not very good at relationships. Why? Uh, because this is maybe something that happened when I was younger. I never really spoke about it. You know, this is something that, you know, I, I, how I was treated when I was younger, I never really spoke about it. And then you can give air to it. People go, wow, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. And then you can look at it and go, fuck, you know, maybe there is a different perspective. Well, what was the benefit of that? You know, what skills, knowledge and experience did you gain from that insight? And do you think it served you enough now in order for you to let that go so you can learn a new skill? And when you create those moments in time for people to put down their baggage, and that's why, you know, it's so funny when you put a camera on someone from K2 and you say, what's the biggest benefit? You know, in most cases, they'll lead with, I've reconnected with my family. I've lost weight. Uh, I'm talking to my parents for the first time in years. You know, you'll hear this myriad of social and familial impacts. And then down the very end, oh, yeah, yeah. And I took my business from 1 million to 10 million. And it's always the, uh, and this is what we've got to understand. Like, And in K2, you know, that we don't focus on making money. We focus on the things that as a natural consequence produce that result. And I think in life, that's a good life strategy. You know, when you try and focus on being happy, that makes it, you know, it can be a bit of a challenging order. But when you focus on just being happy and doing the things that, you know, allow you to be happy naturally, well, fuck, what do you know? Natural consequence, I'm happy. It's <laughs> so, who fucking knew? Yeah, it's rocket science for some of us. So who inspires you, Kerwin? Oh, you know, I, I was very lucky I got asked this question the other day. Um, look, I, I've I've given up on being inspired by people for the most part, I don't know. And I don't mean that in a, in an arrogant way, but cause there's just always so much more, you know, cause I'm inspired by Elon Musk and his brain, but I know there's a whole lot much more to, to Elon. And so he, there are aspects of him that inspire me, but the people that I get the most inspiration from now, uh, and this is going to sound a little trite back, but it's, it's people like you, it's people like Julie Fletcher, it's people like Albert Hendricks, you know, uh, Andy Fenton. It's the people that are involved in our communities that are doing the frontline work, whereby we're supporting people and we're really making a difference, you know, and I, I literally got this message this morning. I should read it out to you. This is what fucking inspires me uh, right here. Uh, I got this message this morning from a young guy. Where is he? Uh, Yuri. And he goes, Kerwin, what a year it's been. I don't know if you get time to read these all, read all the shit that people write you, but on the off chance you do, I want to share a bit of an update with you. It's been a little over 18 months since I originally reached out to you for help in a pretty vulnerable and desperate state. And today I just quit my job. I've religiously stuck to your principles and have been focused on my goal each and every day. That's put me in a position where I can leave my employment and go out and create my own empire. I'm now piecing together my own finance company. Turns out I can handle money quite well when I put my mind to it with a fantastic like-minded business partner with whom I've set ambitious, but realistic 12 month, 24 month and five year goals with. I've never felt more positive about where I am currently and about my future. I've said it before, Kerwin, I'll say it again. 18 months ago, you saved me with the simple reply <clears throat> to my call for help. I owe you my life. It's <clears throat> amazing. Amazing. And, and the thing is, I see all those things all the time, Kerwin. You are unbelievable. You've changed my life. 
Um, and I see the impact that you have in our K2 community and I just love it. I just love it. And you're so humble. And that's that's probably one of the things that's so beautiful about you is that you're not doing this to get a pat on the back. You really, you know, you're really doing it to change people's lives for them to be able to have a better life. And 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 I just love it. Thanks. So obviously, a little bit of rapid fire. Thank you for being so vulnerable. No, thank you. A bit of rapid fire. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Ooh. Um, I don't think it was given to me, but it's one that I give myself on a regular basis. And it's kind of an extension of um, some of the content that I've produced recently about, you know, the, the looking at the reward system and the greatest reward you can ever give yourself is self-acknowledgement. And when you can get to the point where you, like you, you said, you don't need a pat on the back and all you need is, you know, you to fist bump yourself, the best pieces of advice I can get you is get to that place as quickly as possible because then you're bulletproof. You know, you're not doing it for something that is of an extrinsic nature. And so you don't need people to show up and give you a pat on the back in order for you to turn up that day. You know, you're not doing it, you know, because you are hoping to get a certain bank account. Because if your bank account doesn't hit that, you may not feel the way that's required. But if you do it purely based off your own drive uh, and your ability to look at yourself and give yourself credit where it's due uh, and also give yourself coaching where it's required, yeah, it's the best piece of advice I can give anyone. And obviously in the theme of living your best life, um, the, the name of our podcast, what are the things, what does living your best life mean to you? Being happy. Being happy. I love it. So cool. And what's next for you? I know that a big uh, break is truly yes. needed at the moment. Uh, yeah. Last week. Yeah, look, my break, my, my, my two-month holiday looks like it's been cut back to one month, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> it gets taken away so quickly. Uh, what next for me? Uh, we're getting ready to set our next mission, um, and a mission in our organisation is normally a five- to ten-year objective. Um, and so I'm really right now taking my time, you know, much to the discomfort of a lot of the leaders in the company with really looking at and letting that crystallise. And so for us, you know, what's next for us is really looking at the live event space um, and the broadcast space. And, um, you know, really looking at how we combine those two together in a way that enables us to be able to impact more people. Um, you know, also with the brand, we've got a very strong, obviously, commercial model in the business space, but um, we're bringing back programs now that I used to run five, six years ago that are for the general public, you know, that are really around the stuff that we've been talking about, life, love, relationships and performance. Um, and so, yeah, we want to widen that up and open that up to the broader audience and not just business owners. So we've got a program coming back next year called Power to Create, which I think you're familiar with as well. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about bringing that back and having a greater impact on um, more people, not just people in business. Mm. So for anybody that wants to, you know, hear a bit more Kerr and Ray, obviously, you know, you can, uh, I was just going to say about your amazing pods, podcast, Unstoppable. I've listened to every single episode. I absolutely love it. It's 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 the best. Uh, awesome, that's probably mate. why I've got a podcast now. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope so. When I grow up, I want to be like Kerwin. Uh-huh. Um, but where else could people find you? Yeah, I'm, uh, we're across everything, like Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Snapchat, Facebook. Got a very strong presence on Facebook, Spotify, iTunes, um, Parler, Telegram, <laughs> TikTok. Uh, yeah, you can you can find me, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty much, much anywhere. anywhere. Anyway, Kerwin, thank you from my heart to yours. Thank you for joining me on my podcast today. I can't wait uh, to share. Um, our little- Great podcast, Beck, and hats off to you, like, you know, I want to give a bit of a shout out for those of you who, who maybe don't know Beck as well as what I do. To see the growth that you've had in the last five years has been phenomenal. You know, I, I feel like when you came into K2, you were 
this rough cut diamond that could, you know, herd sheep uh, and and drink cocktails at the same time. Like you were just this wild ball of energy. And to see the way that you have focused yourself and created, you know, a real little empire there and to see you continually flourish and grow. And, you know, I think you're an incredible example of female entrepreneurship, Beck, because, you, you know, you haven't lost yourself in the process you know, you're an incredibly strong woman, but you're also incredibly, you know, you're incredibly womanly woman at the same time. And so, you know, keep doing what you do. And um, yeah, I'm just so inspired by your journey. As I said, you know, it's not just Yuri's message. It's the messages I get to hear about the evolution, you know, the going to buying your first, your dream home to, you know, having the dream connection and relationship with your family. It's just, yeah, you've done incredible work and I, I want to honor that. Thank you. And I think what it is, is that I actually found myself. That's the thing. Mm. And, um, Get to know who you are. Yeah, will be the best Thank discovery you of your so life. Much, Thanks, so Beck. Grateful. Love you lots. Bye.